Hello, this is Leela Viss, and welcome to Key Ideas. Piano teaching doesn't come bundled with ready-made solutions. This podcast highlights some brilliant options for innovative piano teachers just like you. Today, I welcome Peter Dugan, host of National Public Radio's beloved show called From the Top. From the Top is America's largest national platform celebrating the stories, talents, and character of young, classically trained musicians. Through live events, NPR, and video broadcasts, scholarships, and arts education programs, the show empowers these extraordinary young people to engage and inspire music lovers of all ages. This episode is brought to you by my dear friend, Wendy Kirby Alexander, who happens to be a good friend of Peter Dugan. Thank you, Wendy. And let me take a moment to say a special congratulations to Wendy. For you listeners who are MTNA members, Wendy was named a Music Teachers National Association Foundation Fellow. She continues to inspire students and teachers in the state of California every day, and now she's been recognized for her time and leadership. I can't thank her enough for introducing me to Peter. And of course, I'm thrilled that Peter agreed to join me. Before we get started, listen to what Peter has been up to, and you'll understand why I'm over the top excited that he took time out to chat with me. Peter Dugan is heard nationwide as the host of NPR's beloved program, From the Top. He has appeared as a soloist, recitalist, and chamber musician across North America and abroad, and can be heard as a piano soloist on a new release of Ives' Fourth Symphony from Tilson Thomas and the San Francisco Symphony, and was described by the Los Angeles Times as stunning, and by the San Francisco Chronicle as fearlessly athletic. In 2020, he joined violinist Joshua Bell for At Home With Music, a national PBS broadcast and live album release on Sony Classical. A sought-after multi-genre artist, Mr. Dugan has performed in duos and trios with artists ranging from Itzhak Perlman and Renee Fleming to Jesse Colin Young and Glenn Close. His debut album with baritone John Brancy, A Silent Night, a World War I memorial in song pays homage to composers who lived through, fought in, and died in the Great War. Brancy and Dugan toured this program across North America in commemoration of the centennial of World War I. Together, they won first prize at the 2018 Montreal International Music Competition and second prize at the 2017 Wigmore Hall International Song Competition. As a founding creator of Operation Superpower, a superhero opera for children, he has traveled to dozens of schools in the greater New York area, performing for children and encouraging them to use their talents, their superpowers, for good. Mr. Dugan is a Yamaha artist and holds bachelor's and master's degrees from the Juilliard School. He resides in New York City with his wife, mezzo-soprano Kara Dugan, and serves on the piano faculty at the Juilliard School Evening Division. Well, welcome, Peter Dugan. Thanks so much for being here with me. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. You know, we could talk about the highlights of your career. Uh, Mm -hmm. We could talk about your collaborations with world-renowned artists like Joshua Bell, Renee Fleming, and others. Uh, There really is just too many to name. And then we could talk about how you landed the job of any musician's dream, the new host of NPR's From the Top. And yeah, we'll get to that. But today I want to learn, or I want to start with, why you include this phrase in your bio. Prizing versatility as the key to the future of classical music, Mr. Dugan is equally at home in classical jazz and pop idioms. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've had that phrase in my bio for some time now. And uh, I got to say, I think that's just central to my identity as a musician, as an artist. And for since I was a kid, um, I, since I was probably seven or eight years old and my older brother told me, Hey, if you're going to play the piano, you better learn to play the blues. <laughs> and, and cause he was a, he, my, you know, my older brother being a, a jazz and classical musician trained in both formally trained in, you know, in both areas. Um, and as a pianist, but primarily as a saxophonist, 
and uh and told me hey you better you better learn the blues and uh and so ever since then it was just a central part to my identity and i when when you think about you know the phrase that you read there um the versatility is the in a way like the key to the future of classical music that has to do with the fact that um that as we, as we look around ourselves right now i think we find that genre and the the distinctions between genre are becoming less and less uh it, less and less clear less and less important and um you know i've always felt that just music is music and mm -hmm. and there's we gain such a richer uh, appreciation for any genre of music when we approach it with the knowledge of many genres, right? Mm. So um, I can, you know, I, I remember being a kid and and rocking out to to Stravinsky, you know, or 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 getting to a passage in a in a Beethoven sonata and just thinking this is this is rock and roll right here. Mm. Um, or, or to be, you know, even more historically accurate, when you are uh, approaching the music of of the early twentieth century that we think of as classical music, and how how much more sense it makes if you actually know something about jazz. So, um, so really, all of that, you know, is it, that's what all, that's what it's all about. It's just about being a more uh, well rounded artist and having a richer understanding of the way music works, you know, even if, uh, and, and for me, there's still genres that I'm, that I, that I want to learn more about, you know, I've, I know a little bit about, about Indian ragas, but mm. I, I, not enough, you know, I would, so, so I'm always trying, I'm a curious person. I'm always trying to learn more, uh, because it's, it's only, yeah, it's only going to make us better musicians in every way. So it sounds like one genre enlightens and informs another. And then what's mm -hmm. interesting to me is that you use the word classical and the future of classical music. So that, I don't know, that, that has, that's a powerful statement because it sounds like you don't want to separate things so much anymore and that everything can be considered classical. How are you using that word classical? You know, it's a great question. And I've been, um, I've been trying to actually get away from the term classical music uh, but it's still so omnipresent in the industry and in in the sort of lexicon that uh, I don't know that we're ready to just totally throw it out yet. But I I think that we're we'll probably move in that direction. Um, to call it uh, Western classical music is is much better, or or European based classical music. Uh, but the 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 problem is that it it, it can be limiting to 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 use the term and it has a, a messy history. So, mm -hmm. so I would say, you know, I, I've been, <laughs> I've actually been, uh, one of the things I've been thinking about lately is what could be an alternative term, mm. uh, and a more inclusive term. Unfortunately, I think that the term classical music excludes some, some stuff that is derived from this, from, uh, at least partially derived from that same great tradition of harmony that we find in 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 the European school, um, but but there are other influences as well. And then for whatever reason, you know, it, it ends up getting excluded from the classical canon, and that's something that um, that I I would like to get away from. When you think about Schubert songs, to me, a Schubert song has much more in common with um, a Joni Mitchell song uh, than it does with um, Milton Babbitt, for example. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I hope you don't get a lot of hate for 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 <laughs> me saying this, um, but I just think that we can, yeah, I think we can find so much more in common between between Joni Mitchell and Schubert than we can between Milton Babbitt and Schubert. So the idea that Milton Babbitt is the classical composer and Joni Mitchell is not, and then Schubert is classical, why, why, why does that, that means nothing to me. I mean, and huh. same thing with, with um, um, if you look at uh, uh, Art Tatum and Chopin, 
uh, I find a lot more in common there then, you know, you get the idea. We could we could play this game well, all day. You're blurring the boundaries and you want to s- set new categories, it sounds like. And then it, going back to Art Tatum and Chopin, like, I don't think Chopin ever played the same thing twice. And mm-hmm. so why am I preparing my students to play a Chopin and play exactly what's on the page? That still irks right. me to no end. But, um, you know, it would be so nice if we could, what, what even out the restrictions across the board for every type of music. And yeah, for sure. And, mm. uh, you know, I think we're moving in that direction. I do. Well, it's not, you know, people like you are going to move the needle slowly, but you're going to do that. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk with you today. And I'm so excited to have you here is because you are the quintessential well-rounded musician that I would hope that my students could be someday. And as a recovering classical pianist, I've (laughs) used that term before, I'm still more comfortable on the page, but I do value my my creative voice and I do value improvising and I would never want to deny my students that. So thank you for being that role model for so many people around the world. Thank, but, uh, thank you. Yes. Well, I now we're all curious. It sounds like your brother had a huge impact on yeah. playing the blues because I, I heard that somewhere that you were playing the blues and you loved playing that. And that was how you decompressed almost as a kid. Mm. I'm like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when did you learn it? In kindergarten or what? <laughs> yeah, I was, um, geez, my earliest memory was, I know in second grade, I was already playing the blues because there's... I was on the local news and uh, in in my hometown of Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, and uh, I was on the local news playing, you know, there's a snippet of me playing some 12-bar blues. So I know that at least by that point, by second grade, I was already doing it. So, um, uh, but yes, it was came from my brother, and uh, he, all throughout my, he was nine years older than me, is nine years older than me, so... So, um, you know, by the time I was in fourth grade, he was already in college. Um, so, so all throughout, um, my childhood, he was always there pointing me in, you know, the right direction. And, um, basically as a mentor, not as a formal teacher per se, I never had like lessons with my brother Leonardo or, you know, I call him Leo, but, um, he, yeah. So basically the way it would work is he would say, man, like you got to check out, um, what Joey DeFrancesco does with his left hand and, and, and figure out how to walk a, a baseline. And, um, and okay. So, and he'd say, use, try this to, yeah, you should figure out how to walk a baseline over this tune. And then like, you know, weeks would go by or whatever. And the next time I'd see him, I'd be like, Hey, look, I've been working on that. Um, or he'd just say, you got to listen to this record. And, um, and I would listen to it and um, basically imitate, uh, uh, you know, a, a real truly like formally trained jazz musician spends tons and tons of time transcribing solos note for note. Um, I, I never went through that level of rigor in my jazz upbringing, but for me, it was more like if I heard uh, a snippet of something, you know, um, I would think, man, I love that one bar of whatever it was, an Oscar Peterson solo, for example. So then I would just go to the piano and I'd figure out what is he doing in that one bar? Uh, what are the changes, the, you know, the chord changes that he's playing that over? And then why do I like it so much? Not just like, can I parrot it back? But why, why did that grab me? And then how can I apply that to other, in other keys and, and in other contexts? And um, that was sort of how my musical palette was expanding, was by, by uh, listening and, and dissecting and analyzing things and then mimicking back what I loved. So it sounds like we all need a cool brother who comes home from college. Like, <laughs> yeah. Hey, this is cool. You should try that. Because I think I would do that. If I had an older brother or sister, that I would be the same way. Uh, but I was never exactly. encouraged as a child to listen to something and then play it. It still blows me away that Toto was my my jam. Like I <laughs> love Toto, but I never, ever thought of bringing it to the piano ever. Mm. And, you know, no one ever encouraged me to. And now I just saw them in concert not too long ago. And wow, the keyboards, it's amazing, you know, what they're doing. And so it, yeah. it just takes someone to say, hey, 
why don't you? And then, so now it sounds like you were steeped in jazz from an early age. And were you also taking classical piano lessons then too? Yeah. I mean, classical piano training was my bread and butter and and still is. And um, I was, from the time I was four, I started on Suzuki piano. Uh, f- and then, you know, but also was supplementing that with, with reading as well. And uh, was taking lessons ever since. Yeah. So classical piano was definitely my my the, the foundation of my learning and i had teachers all along the way who um i i never had a piano teacher who was a jazz player but i had um all, but all my teachers were supportive of me playing in other styles and uh and even at juilliard when i was there with mati raikalio my my professor at juilliard who was who you know he's just a really open-minded musician and not only was was he supportive of me going outside the classical genre uh but he also said you know or or he was always supportive of me doing chamber music as well which was Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, uh, you know, I don't know if they've changed the rules there since I was there. So I, so, you know, maybe you can't quote me on this, but when I was there, uh, freshman pianists were not allowed to do chamber music. I mean, we, we were like forbidden um, mm. to play chamber music. And, uh, and he went to bat for me and, and, you know, wrote a letter and was like, this is absurd because I had really, really good friends who were string players and we were dying to play chamber music together, you know, as a, as a fulfilling social, thing in addition to artistically and we had a coach who we wanted to study with and so you know he he stepped up and said like this is absurd you have to let him play study chamber music and uh so appreciate that Hmm. and so it seems like you had a two-track system going most of your life playing both and using your ear as well as reading and man if only the whole world could have that kind of training. But it sounds like you were quite a prodigy as well. It sounds like you had some things in place early on. Is that kind of true? Well, I... Um, Don't be too humble. <laughs> I, I, I never identified myself as a prodigy at all. Uh, I certainly would not, looking back. Um, I, 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 no, I was really not the, the kind of person who you know when they're when they're tiny they go on stage and they play they play big concertos that that wasn't me and in fact i you know i wasn't the 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 kid winning every competition um i wasn't the kid with the fastest scales um so i no i would never consider myself a prodigy but i always um i always loved it and but i had to i had to really uh push to like especially if you took a snapshot of me at like 15 years old um that was kind of a turning point for me we'll be right back thanks so much for listening if you leave a five-star rating or write a kind review it really helps piano teachers just like you find key ideas and your written reviews matter I read every one. If you took a snapshot of me at like 15 years old, um, that was kind of a turning point for me when I had um, some people who were, um, you know, like administrators at my music school where I was studying, telling my my parents that essentially like I should give up on any hope of going to a conservatory because I didn't have the chops. And, um, and I, uh, didn't, that's not what I wanted to hear. I, I, you know, I wanted to keep going. So, so I, at right around that time, I made some big changes in my daily routine and worked out some things with my school. I went to a really academically rigorous high school. Um, so they made some accommodations that allow me to go into school late. So I would wake up in the morning and practice for two hours. And then I would go to school and do all my AP courses and then come back and practice for two more hours. So that's when I really, I basically went from being a kid who practiced one hour a day to a person who practices four hours a day. So it had pretty much to do with passion more than anything else. You wanted this. Yeah. And don't tell me what I can't do. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like that kind of thing as well. <laughs> right. So I, I, yeah, I wanted it bad. And, mm. um, and I was willing to, you know, put in the extra work. 
and sort of get my technique to where it needed to be uh, so that I could compete uh, in terms of getting into a, a top conservatory, you know, which I was fortunate enough to actually succeed in. Yeah. So now I'm thinking, okay, which direction we go again? Because we could go the prodigy term, which you and I talked about and how we don't like yeah, that word. Don't like Or it. we could also go to the practice route. And, you know, it would <laughs> be lovely to hear some amazing practice tips. And, you know, how did you practice that much and not injure yourself, especially mm. as a young pianist? I think overeager pianists tend to do that more often because they just work really hard until they get it. So right. which direction should we go to? <laughs> um, well, I could say a quick word about... <laughs> okay. About prodigies just be in, in the sense that as you mentioned before I'm the the host of from the top and spend a lot of my time working with kids who are you know very they're the kinds of people who you might want to call a prodigy and uh and just the, you know we I really try to stay away from the word because I've never spoken even when it's like a 12 year old who nails the Chopin winter wind etude um I've even th someone like that has never said, yeah, call me a prodigy. <laughs> when when you ask these these young people how they feel about the term prodigy, every single one 100% of the time says they don't like it um, because it can, it can sort of make it seem, well, for two reasons. One is it makes it seem like they are a sort of uh, freak show designed to appear on the Ellen DeGeneres show, wow us, and then disappear backstage, <laughs> okay. uh -huh. right? And it kind of fails to to acknowledge the humanity of these these mm -hmm. kids, and their, which is one of our missions at From the Top is to show to audiences that these are these are human beings, you know, who are mm -hmm. thoughtful and and have struggles and have passions uh, beyond just playing music. Uh, then, and the other part is that they work really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the prodigy term is a way for us uh, to comfort ourselves. Like, well, you know, they, I just they just have this prodigy gift. Of course, they're gifted, but it, but that you know there's so much discipline and hard work that goes mm -hmm. into what these young people do. So, you know, I, th I think it's important to, to lay that out there. Um, but going to your other question about practicing, mm -hmm. um, I, I'm a very different practicer now than I was when I was, you know, in high school, very, very mm -hmm. different. So, um, I almost can't remember what practicing <laughs> was like in high school. I don't think it was good. Um, <laughs> you got the job done. I have, yeah, I have had my share of of injuries. I, I'm fortunately I haven't had any like long term in injuries, but I've had a couple of bouts with with tendonitis and um and really when you have something like that, it really makes you stop and um and think about how what you can do um to to protect yourself. Um, but also there's a terrible stigma associated with tendonitis as well um, among musicians, uh, which I don't like, you know, mm. the, the, the sort of shame that I felt when I first had to make a call, um, and change repertoire in a program because it was just too, too demanding for me at that time. Uh, you know, I only had to do this once fortunately, but i you know, it was horrible, a horrible experience oh. for me to have to make that phone call and say, listen, like I have to change the rep because this one is just, this is piece is, is hurting me. And uh, fortunately, the, the person who I spoke to was incredibly understanding and said, like, you just got to take care of yourself. And, uh, you know, I got back to a place that was good. But yes, there can be, there, there can be flaws in our technique. But first of all, we all have flaws in mm -hmm. our technique. Mm -hmm. um, maybe one person's flaw results in tendonitis but, and another person's doesn't and that that's too bad. But it's not that, you know, the people without tendonitis are perfect. So, you know, that's important, I think, to lay that out there. Um, but the, the, the other thing is that sometimes it's just the schedule and just like the demand of, you know, when I look at what happened to me when I like leading up to my injury, um, I think it was that I was having tons of music thrown at me with like, Hey, learn this Sonata in a week, um, or bring that piece back in, in five days, you know? And mm -hmm. then, and, and over the course of a month perform four hours of, of, uh, or five hours of different repertoire, you know what I mean? It's like the amount. And, and then in the in midst of that traveling and having, you know, getting three hours of sleep before an early flight and like all those things, they, they add up, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so to just, so because of that, I think it's really important that we try to get rid of this, the stigma associated with, you know, injuries like tendonitis and, and not, 
not associate any shame with that and just mm. be it's more important to be proactive and and compassionate um so that's how i feel about that uh, yeah. but in terms Amen of practice that i, I yeah. appreciate that because there are you know we're always judging each other's technique i know secretly we always are and i'm looking at my students like oh we should be working on that and then i'm thinking but wait a minute they're playing what they want to play and we'll get to it we'll we'll move forward but it, the body is an interesting thing that everyone feels and plays differently and yeah. it may work one way for one and not for another so yep. I think it is good to be versatile. There we go with yeah. the word again. <laughs> and to cultivate, you know, body awareness from a mm -hmm. young age is really great. And uh, and encouraging. I mean, I I do about this much yoga. Uh, sorry, I'm, this is okay. an audio yeah. podcast. <laughs> I'm making a very, very small yes. uh -huh. <laughs> gesture. I do too. I do yes. a tiny, 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 uh -huh. tiny bit of yoga. Uh, and it's just enough that it's uh, increased my, my body awareness. Uh, and I can, you know, be in a little bit more in tune to where my support is coming from when I play my, you know, my core and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I, I learn a lot about how to sit at the piano and play at the piano from being married to a singer. You know, ah. my, my wife is a opera singer and she as, and all, as most singers are, is incredibly in tune to her physicality and the way she uses her body for support and her breath and things like that. And pianists can learn a lot from that. So, um, so I, I try to be very aware. Uh, but my 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 biggest practice tip um, to get back to your original question is to is to focus. You know, um, is just to always remember that when we practice, we shouldn't be thinking about a moment like a snapshot in time, a single crystallized moment in time, or a position or a chord, but but the motion that takes us from point A to point B and that, you know, practicing is all about finding the, the movements of the hand or the finger or the arm and rehearsing the movement, uh, from one place to, to, to the next. So that's, yeah, that's kind of, go, can you explain that? Can you give us a, a concrete example of what you mean by that? Cause I, I think I know what you mean because basically when you want to do something with your hands or when you, when I ask students to, raise their wrist, wrist or whatever, I want to give them a reason why it's going to help them. Mm. And so what are you talking about when you're, say, practicing your movements from one to the next? What do you mean by that? Well, I, I mean, I noticed this, especially, you know, in the teaching that I do, is that when someone's learning a new piece of music, they will often find, for example, a particular chord, a particular note, as if, um, as, and identify like this is the hard chord or this is like oh getting that note is so hard you know okay. oh it's so mm -hmm. hard for me to hit that note and instead of thinking about you know how i travel how am i traveling mm. from 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 what came before and the value of like rehearsing your transitions you know and your and and the way you travel your hand or your arm kind of travels from one place to the next um, I don't know if that, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it that makes, makes sense, sense because yeah, you're picking up and moving over for the most part. And yeah. so when you land at that new place, the hard place, you got to figure out how to get there to make it easy. sounds like. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, so when you're practicing, you're, you're rehearsing, it's, it's choreography, you know, mm -hmm. you're, you're rehearsing the, the moves, Exactly. And is there w one thing in particular that you notice that has really helped you stay? I hate the word relaxed because we're not really relaxed when we're playing piano, <laughs> but we are resting in certain areas too, right? You, right. We're not always in action, but do you have any tips about, you know, I, I noticed that students, they want to just sink and almost press the keys. And I say, you mm. know, the key's not going anywhere. You don't have to press. You just have to lower those kind of mm. things. But do you have any vocabulary or anything that helps alleviate some of the pressure that students will often or younger players will often you know use when they lower a key uh you know you probably have more experience with teaching <laughs> the young ones than i do um but for you know one of the things that i that i think about a lot is is the idea of forced what i call forced relaxation mm. of the fingers um which is to 
to feel like the key, uh, like the surface of the keys is a resting place, mm-hmm. even when you're not playing, the, the, when, you're, when you're not, you know, pressing down the notes. Um, so, so because so many pianists will want to, you know, the, the fingers that aren't playing are, you see them lift up off of the keys. And, uh, and to basically say that every time you do that, you're creating, that's an unnecessary source of tension. Mm-hmm. Um, so with, it, you actually need to practice forced relaxation. Um, and ultimately it becomes second nature and you, you can, the fingers will relax on the, and, and recognize the surface of the key to be a place where they can relax, but you have to force it at first. And, uh, so it's just the same idea as like, I'm going to, I'm going to take a day off from work. I'm going to mm-hmm. go to the spa. You know, that's what you need to do with your fingers. You got to just, even when they're not performing, uh, or playing a note, they should be resting there on, you should, you should, we, we need to find the, the surface of the keys as a place of rest. So uh, to me, that's the biggest thing. Uh, w- you know, one thing that I like to do is, just um, encourage students to, if you if you take the the sort of the heel of your hand, if you will, the the base where the palm kind of approaches the wrist, and let that just sit on the on the wood right in front of the keys. You know what I mean? And then the keys, the hands lay out, and the palm, everything is just laid out over top of the keys, and you don't have to play any notes by doing that, but you just have to start to feel like this is a place where I rest. The, the, mm-hmm. the keyboard is a place where my hands rest. So you are telling me that when I tell my students to stay away from the snake pit, that <laughs> I'm really doing them a disfavor, but you know what I mean? They want to kind of like hang like that, but mm, I like that. Yeah, that's a good, and what I'm thinking of is, yes, I've got some more advanced students and i'm sure some of the listeners do too where you know you can tell that they are adding too much pressure and you and working too hard mm-hmm. and how to be more efficient so it, i'm wondering is there a favorite video of you playing where you think oh man i really rocked my technique you know like is there something that i can put in the show notes that would show us peter oh, Gibbons' best technique well i don't know about that <laughs> um there's there's a live performance on YouTube of of me playing the Moonlight Sonata that um you know I don't know if it's if it's to everyone's taste but um but I feel like when I I remember that concert because I felt very in control of my it wasn't perfect. Like if if you're listening and you want to go listen, you find the wrong note, go for it. Um, it wasn't perfect, <laughs> but the point is, like when I, I remember when I played that concert, um, I felt like my my I was in control of my body, mm-hmm. and I was and I was actually a lot more calm in my upper body mm. than I often am when I play. I had been watching all these videos of Wilhelm Kempf um, because I'm very inspired by. Kemp's physicality. Um, it, there's so, which if you if you see me play a lot, you might find that surprising because I'm I don't look like Kemp at the piano, but um, I, sometimes I wish I did more. Uh, but you know, it, like he's the the emotional feeling of the of the music is so much like internal. It's so internal for him, mm-hmm. and there's so much of it is just like in his in his gaze in his eyes, and uh, there are all these wild videos of him playing these tremendously difficult pieces and he's as so still you know he's he's Mm. so so calm in his in his body and um so that's something i strive for especially when i know that i'm that that i'm encountering something more athletic it's like um how do i how do i stay really in control of what i'm doing so that's something we have to all think about as performers is balancing out the the athleticism of what we do mm-hmm. with the artistry and the poetry of it right yeah and i like the word ath- athlete because it is it's it's definitely a workout in some man i remember ways. when um i'm i'm from philly and i'm a big phillies fan and when the phillies won the world series in 2008 and around that time i was watching all these interviews after the games of, and they had all these great pitchers in 2009 or 10, they had like, they call them like the five aces. They're, they're like all mm. so many great pitchers. So I would listen to all of these interviews of the pitchers talking about, um, you know, questions like, how did you get out of that tough inning? Like, you know, in press mm-hmm. conferences, they'd mm-hmm. say like, you know, you had the bases were loaded. You only had one out. What did you do to get out of that inning? And the, one of the things that they, 
often say is they've, I just thought about my mechanics. They use that phrase, you know, I thought about my mechanics. I went back to my, basically the idea of going back to basics when you're Mm -hmm. in trouble. Um, So, you know, and, and using like the focus on the mechanics as a way of combating the stress of, oh my God, the, the anxiety of like the bases are loaded and I only have one out. Um, so that was something that inspired me in my practice is like, okay, what are the mechanics and how can that, so that's something that I still do, you know, if I'm on stage and I'm approaching that hard spot, cause you know, that's what happens. Like that voice in your head starts going like, oh, oh here it too? comes. Wait a minute. You have one? Oh, we all have them. <laughs> we all have them. Oh, okay. And, yeah. So, so that voice comes and, you know, you think, no. how am I going to, how am I going to get mm. through this? So if you can just say, oh, I'm going to feel nice and supported in my abdomen, or I'm going to drop my shoulder. I'm going to engage this muscle right back here. You know what I mean? And you start thinking like that kind of mechanical athletic mindset. Then for me, like that's often what gets me through the, through the tough passages. Yeah. Oh, that's good advice. Very good advice. Huh? Well, where do you feel the most home at? And I'm I'm thinking again, we have some more directions to go because you mentioned YouTube. And I when my friend Wendy told me about Peter Dugan, she's like, oh, you got to go look on, look him up on YouTube. And so I did. And then I found you playing with all these fantastic people. And man, were you having fun with them doing different <laughs> things and playing different things. And, you know, uh, let's see, who's your violin friend? Oh, I have a couple of violin friends, but I think you're talking okay. about Charles Yang. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Like, you two just have so much fun. And that's what I'm thinking is so exciting about seeing a classical musician, someone at the top, from the top, at the top, <laughs> and you're having fun with your instrument. And yeah. you allow yourself to, what, play in the middle of the field. and <laughs> Right. You know, I, that to me shows that music is more than just playing the notes on the page. So, so t- tell tell us now how you've gotten to some of these interesting places, and and working with other people and collaborating with them. Well, you know, collaboration has always been something that I find incredibly rewarding. The social element of making music is has been part of music since it's the beginnings of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, music has always been there for a social purpose. Um, so to just kind of isolate ourselves in a practice room um, and then go on stage, play by ourselves and then go back alone to the dressing room. You know what I mean? Like the loneliness of that. Now I I love playing a solo recital here and there, but yeah, you know, and maybe for some folks, they, that, that rocks their world. But for me, I find it can be a little lonely. So um, when you have someone to share it with, it's, it's wonderful. And when you have someone who you're on stage with, who you trust, who, you know, you know, you have each other's backs, uh, that's a beautiful thing. So um, I've always found that to be true of collaborations. Uh, But, you know, you, you got to find that right partnership where, where you're of like minds and you have, um, you, you gel, you know, Mm -hmm. so Charles and I have that and we've, we've been playing together for, for 10 years and, um, I have that with, when I work with my wife and, um, another singer, John Brancy, baritone, um, you know, like people like that, who I work with, I've worked with so much now that you, you just understand each other's artistry in a way that's really, really deep. So you can, you can kind of anticipate what the other person is going to do on stage and you're surprising one another and, uh, and you're out there like, you know, you're in it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really, really cool and, and rewarding experience. So, um, yeah, those, some of those videos, like if you're talking about the YouTube videos online with Charles Yang, I mean, most of those are things that we just came up with. Uh, like a lot of those are, are, are arrangements of everything from, you know, an Ariana Grande song to Sam Cooke to uh, um, the good, the bad and the ugly, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, those things we came up with for various reasons. Like it, sometimes it's just in the case of the Ariana Grande song, I remember it was my brother again. He was like, man, he, he called me up and was like, have you heard the changes of this? <laughs> like, they're kind of dope. If you, if you just, if you just kind of play it like, you know, as, as if it were like a tune, 
and you you can this is kind of hot you can you can solo over it and um and then i started thinking more about that i was like man maybe we could turn that into something so like that was how that came about um sam cook that you know that's just an iconic song that charles and i just you know we just wanted to perform it because it's a great work of art um not not much different than choosing to play a great sonata you know it's yeah. it's just like hey this is a great piece of music that was written and i'd love to perform it and bring my own um voice to it uh and then in the case of good the bad and the ugly we were just happened to be in the desert and we had we had the afternoon off before the show and uh we were looking around and just thinking and charles had a nice camera with him and we thought you know let's like forget about rehearsing we we had a show that night and we were like i don't want to practice let's let's shoot a video <laughs> and uh and we were like what would be the perfect video we were inspired by the landscape essentially mm -hmm. you know we looked around us and we thought i really want to play the good the bad and the ugly right now and we spent all day doing that and then with, with like 30 minutes before the show we we're like hey let's come up with a set list for this show <laughs> and um you know put it together at the last second but we were just having fun what's interesting is i just had a piano student last night and he's in high school and is supposed to be in choir but of course they're not singing so the right. latest assignment in choir is editing making and editing a video mm. <laughs> so it you know all the things that you're talking about right now are all related and all stem from that need to be creative yes. with our music making and yeah. And, and everyone like should know how to make. Yeah. yeah. Well, everyone should know how to make a video now. Like mm -hmm. uh, as now more than ever after this, after this year, at this point, there's no, I mean, for a musician, you know, there's no excuse because, and you can do it. Yeah. You can get fancy with it, but you can do it just on your phone. You know, right. you can get free yeah. apps and, and make it something pretty decent on just on your phone. So let's talk about your show just a little bit because there there are so many things about it first of all you're giving a platform for young performers to shine yeah. especially in a in a day and time and age right now where it's hard to cut through the noise and hard to make a difference and i feel like mm -hmm. your show from the top is helping to make a difference and to let people see people doing their best what they love and I'm wondering how you feel when you see these emerging artists talk about, oh, I may end up going to a conservatory and I may go into a music career. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that? I It inspires me when okay. I, I mean, because we often, what, what you do here on the radio is the young performers play their music and then speak with me for, you know, five or six minutes. Uh, what you don't hear on the radio is all that happens behind the scenes mm -hmm. where we are spending a lot of time with the young musicians um, working on uh, arts leadership, community engagement mm -hmm. projects. Mm -hmm. You know, we spend a lot of time with every young musician who comes on our show and get to know them and and really talk with them about what it means to be an artist right now in the world. Um, so you don't always necessarily hear that part on, on NPR, but I think it's important to know that that's, that does go on behind the scenes. So, uh, you know, in the process of those conversations, I do hear a lot of kids who say, yeah, I want to go into music. Actually, um, recently on an episode, this did come up in the, and, and it made it on the air in this part of this kid's interview. Um, he was an organist and, mm -hmm. uh, amazing organist he played this fantastic bach and um he i asked him on on the show uh if he thinks you know he's gonna music is it for him and he says without a moment's hesitation yes absolutely yes definitely right and so sometimes we 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 hear that response and i love that because that's an indication of how of the extent of this young person's passion you know, mm -hmm. and that that conviction to to find that in someone who's only 17 years old is is wild. Um, on the other hand, uh, sometimes we meet someone who says, you know what, I know that music is going to be a passion for me, but it's not, it's not going to be everything. And I'm going to go and I'm going to become an engineer or whatever. And that's great too. The hard thing I think is when you find someone who's really on the fence mm -hmm. and when you find someone who's 17 or 18 and thinking, how do I, how do I make up my mind? Um, that's hard because when when someone has that much potential as a musician, you know, I always want to just push them in that way. But um, at the same time, I think it's important to remind young people that they'll always be musicians. Like at that point, like, mm -hmm. you know, I, that's what I say to our, our young artists. Like, you know, 
at this point, it's too late for you to go back. You will always mm -hmm. be a pianist. You will always be a flutist. Um, you just, it, you, it might not be how you're making your, your, you know, monthly rent or whatever, but, um, but you'll always have that and it'll always be a comfort to you. It'll be a source of joy for you. Um, and your life will be in much richer because of it, you know? So that I think is so important to realize that for, for a young person to realize that by not going in, into music professionally, it doesn't mean they're closing the door on music in their life, mm. you know, but it's, nice. it's hard. It is hard, especially because I have some seniors and two in particular who could make it in the music world just with their skills. And yet I find myself having a hard time saying, oh, just go for music, you know, because I know they both are great students overall. I think one may even double major, but it's mm. interesting that I even find myself thinking, hmm, I don't know if you want to do that or not. And so part of me feels like they, uh, it may ruin music for them as well, just because, you know, some of those courses like counterpoint and figured bass and all those kind of things, you kind of wonder, <laughs> what is the point? But it, maybe they should talk to someone like Peter when they're wondering, because yeah, I, I like your perspective that if you have the passion, you can do it. Yeah. I, I I think I think it's true, and mm -hmm. and your your story will unfold in front of you. Mm -hmm. Though that this is the other problem that that I think we need to get away from is the presenting it as like either you become a star soloist, winning every competition, and that's success, or mm -hmm. everything else is failure. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, everything yeah. everything short of being at the star soloist um, at Carnegie Hall is somehow less or missing the mark or, or falling short. Mm -hmm. That's to me, that's a huge problem. Um, and that's one of the reasons why you, you have these musicians going to conservatories with these ex expectations that are just, you know, not healthy. Yeah. It's not healthy to, to think that if that either you become that soloist or else you're a failure. Mm -hmm. Um, why, why, why set that goal for yourself that's um so it has to be much more built the idea of success has to be sort of redefined i think in our field mm -hmm. to be much more inclusive of um different kinds of fulfillment and happiness and and what you're giving back to your community and to the world like that's that's success you know um and you can find artistic fulfillment in so many ways and um and it's 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 hard when you, because sometimes like the the model is so deeply ingrained in the industry that it's really hard to say I don't have to be performing the Hammer Clavier Sonata on the stage of Carnegie Hall to have musical fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Like it's you know you have like we really have to work towards towards loosening up that that f that feeling. Yeah. Huh giving us a whole new mindset to consider, I think, especially in the 21st century of where music is going to go. We know it's an important part of our life. That is, especially when I've read enough books about uh, how we need music in our lives, especially singing together, how important and healing that mm. can be. And when that's been denied over this past year, there's just so many things about music that you know, are so important now coming out of this pandemic. It's going to be a great way for us to heal, a powerful way for us to come back together again. And I don't think we'll ever take any of that for granted again either. I hope not. I know. I know. Yeah. So thank you so much for, yes, I, I like the thing of blurring the boundaries of classical music. And that's going to get me thinking about a, a new name for classical music. You'll probably come up with it, but I'll be thinking about it along with you because mm -hmm. um, you're definitely a, f a pioneer in the world uh -huh. of the classical music and um, seeing things from both sides and being able to cross over from one genre to the other. I just so, so appreciate that. And thank you for being that role model for thank our you. students, but also for our teachers, for teachers who are preparing musicians for the future. You're very important mm. to all of us, so I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thanks. I appreciate all that all that you do and all the teachers out there. Mm -hmm. um, the you know we we need you. We need mm -hmm. all of you. I was wondering, do you think you know? Could you like 
show us how you decompress and close us out with a little bit of your blues? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I got my piano here. Why not? Okay, cool. I'll just, I'll just, well, I'll, I'll see what I play. I don't know what I'm going to play. <laughs> there's not much more I can add to this conversation. So I end by saying one more thank you to Peter for sharing his insights in such a warm, personable way and taking time out to dive into some pretty heavy topics. And of course, playing us out with the blues. What a treat. Make sure to head to the show notes at lilavis.com slash key ideas to catch the videos we discussed and find a link to From the Top where you can learn where to watch or listen to the show weekly. I leave you with this quote from Charles Yang. Much of my formative years as a musician was built upon the From the Top family. So much of my career today is collaborating with my musical brother, Peter Dugan. I am beyond excited that these two worlds have come together. Peter is truly one of the most talented and informed artists today, who is also generous and nurturing with his gift. Can't wait for the future. Until next time, this is Leela Viss, and see you in the trenches. <laughs>